0: It can sometimes be hard to find fresh, engaging, and practical ways to learn about the Catholic faith that feel relevant to your daily life. That's why Ave Maria Press launched its Ave Explores initiative to help nourish your faith in ways that are meaningful to you. Check out the Ave Explores podcast hosted by Katie Prejean-McGrady and make sure to subscribe. You can also sign up for all of the free content at AveMariaPress.com or by following Ave Maria Press on social media. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
1: Every child is a mystery, but as scientific advances in prenatal testing grow, so does the temptation to know more and more about our unborn children. Will they be healthy? What are the chances they will have a disability? With questions like these comes another question. How much is too much when it comes to trying to know who our children will be? This is Leonard DiLorenzo on Church Life Today from the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and my guest is Dr. Mary O'Callahan, a developmental psychologist who, among other things, studies, writes about, and teaches on disability, selective abortion, and issues of human dignity. Mary O'Callaghan, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Lenny.
1: So Mary, in, in December 2020 edition of the Atlantic Magazine, there was an article by Sarah Shang with the title, The Last Children of Down Syndrome, Prenatal Testing is Changing Who Gets Born and Who Doesn't, and This is Just the Beginning. That article focuses mostly but not exclusively on Denmark, which was one of the first countries in the world to offer prenatal Down syndrome screening to every pregnant woman. So Mary, I wanted to ask you in the past 15 or 20 years, what have been the effects of prenatal Down syndrome screening?
0: A good question, Lenny. So just very briefly, in terms of what's happened in our country, you know, in, in um, 1967, actually, the um, American Medical Association first endorsed abortions in cases where an infant may have a disability. As you know, though, it wasn't until uh, 1973 that Roe versus Wade opened wide the door to such abortions by making abortion legal. At this point, though, you know, the the abortions for children with disabilities weren't widespread. It really took two lawsuits in 1978 and 1979 that led to widespread recommendation of amniocentesis for diagnosis of, of chromosomal abnormalities, including Down syndrome. Both lawsuits um, involved a successful settlement of, of malpractice for failing to advise amniocentesis for two women who had children with Down syndrome. And what this resulted in was that in 1983, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommended prenatal screening for all women over 35. And so from 1983, probably until about 2007, this is where the situation stood. Pregnant women over 35 were offered screening for disabilities, including Down syndrome. In 2007, I think the landscape of prenatal screening in our country changed substantially. In 2007, which was incidentally the same year that my son Tommy was born with Down syndrome, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists updated its screening policy to recommend that all women, regardless of age, be offered prenatal screening. And This was motivated, I think, by her realization that many children with Down syndrome and other chromosomal abnormalities were kind of slipping under the radar. They were going undiagnosed because their mothers were considered young and not at risk. And although age increases risk for certain genetic abnormalities, actually most children with Down syndrome are born to younger mothers simply because the overall pregnancy rates for women under 35 are greater. Right. So, so that was one major change. So and you can sort of think of this is, is now we are casting a wide net, right? So we, there's not a an official policy, right, by our government that we offer prenatal screening, but there is a recommendation by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that all women be offered screening. So it's a little bit different in terms of, you know, sort of where the locus of of this offering comes from, but certainly we have cast a wider net in this country. Another big change that's occurred in 2011, the first maternal blood test for chromosomal disorders was announced. And this announcement was huge because, if you know anything about prenatal testing, the way the, the testing process usually goes is, is something like this. Women are given a screening test, which doesn't give a definitive diagnosis. It sort of tells a woman that they are more at risk, right, for caring a child with a chromosomal disorder. And then after that, if, if there's a high risk, the mother may opt to get a secondary test, a definitive diagnosis, which comes with an amniocentesis or is, is the result of an amniocentesis, which is a very invasive test. So uh, the introduction of a blood test for Down syndrome and other disorders means that more women could be tested, right? With, without risk, there's a slight risk of miscarriage with amniocentesis. Blood tests can also be offered much earlier than amniocentesis, and so with earlier testing, comes presumably sort of more, I, I mean, sort of more palatable, I guess, abortions for some. And so uh, th- this blood test that, that, that was announced in, in 2011 hasn't quite panned out the way that it was originally thought. Right now, it has not proved to be a good definitive diagnostic test. It's still used as a screening test, but really what it's done is it's moved the whole screening process earlier in pregnancy. So now um, we're seeing that mothers can find out before 16 weeks, which was the sort of more typical time frame to find out that a mother was carrying a child with, with a disability yeah you know, I guess we could say that we have more widespread screening. We have earlier screening. um and we have a potentially less invasive screening probably coming quickly on the horizon,
1: so there's more information. That's available earlier, if I'm hearing you correctly, to expectant mothers. But right. the information that's given, let's say, is not definitive, as you said. It, it shows sort of probabilities that you're more or less likely to be carrying a child who has a chromosomal abnormality, as you put it, correct? Absolutely. Okay. and
0: Right. And mothers really have to opt in to, you know, to go to the second level of testing, which would give a definitive diagnosis, I usually see. through an amniocentesis.
1: So do we have, let's say in our country, do we have statistics on what then happens when expectant mothers receive diagnostic tests that say they're more likely to be carrying a child say with down syndrome or they receive more definitive information on that do we do we know what then happens sure.
0: we- Have a lot of information about what happens after screening tests, right? Which would still be, you know, fairly uncertain information. There is some research, I think, in Great Britain that shows that women are more likely to abort after a screening test. But in our country, typically, we have data on what happens after a more definitive diagnostic test, and it's not complete data. We we don't typically keep good data on abortions, reasons for abortions in this country. But the best estimates show that somewhere between 67 and about 90 percent of pregnancies where there's a definitive diagnosis of Down syndrome end in an abortion. And it's really variable. it really depends on region of the country. Abortion rates are higher in the East Coast, Maine, sort of some of those states on the east, they are lower in states like California, which have a higher Hispanic population. Mm-hmm. So so we see some regional variation, but I think the best guess is it's somewhere between about 67 and 90 percent.
1: I see. So, well, at least according to this Atlantic article that I mentioned earlier, which, like I said, focused mostly on Denmark, which in 2004 made the prenatal Down syndrome screening available to all pregnant women, at least in that article, it said that in Denmark, 95% of women, at least by their estimates, choose to terminate the unborn child's life if they are shown to be carrying the extra chromosome.
0: Right. Right.
1: Do you think that the testing, the screening itself is a problem that we've introduced into our Prenatal care.
0: Absolutely. To say that we are, you know, simply testing, offering testing, so that a woman can make, you know, a free and autonomous choice—that's kind of the party line, right? Mm-hmm. That this is this is why we have prenatal testing. In fact, the state of California is the only state that offers comprehensive screening routinely to every every pregnant woman in the state, and it came under fire a few years ago to, um, for being a eugenic practice. And they quickly answered that no, no, this isn't about eugenics and coercion. This is about options and choices for women, but. You know, it is um, ludicrous to think that a state like California or a country like Denmark offers prenatal screening simply out of beneficence, you know, to to give a woman options and choices. The only reason that a state or a country would offer prenatal screening to spend the money, right, on prenatal screening is if there's some benefit. And the benefit is clearly economic, right? There is a whole host of studies which look at the cost effectiveness of prenatal screening. It's it's really difficult literature to read because basically the premise is that, you know, children with Down syndrome costs the state or the insurance company, whoever is paying for medical care, costs the state a certain amount of money over their lifetime. And so it is worth spending money on prenatal screening because these costs basically, it costs less to offer prenatal screening um, with the presumption that abortion will, will occur than it does to support these children over, you know, over a lifetime of care. So it's, it's clear to me that the motivation for offering screening is economic. And so, it's difficult to think that even if parents are making sort of what they think of as free choices within that context, that they're really free, that there aren't certain pressures. And I think one of the first pressures is simply the very offer of a test. If a test is offered to detect Down syndrome, it must be because there's something that we can do, right? There's some action Mm -hmm. that that we should take. And it becomes quite clear that this test is offered in a medical setting, right? And so... If you ask parents why they're undergoing a test, usually what they say is for the health of the baby. But what happens when a test comes back positive, there is no longer an option, right, for a healthy baby. The only option really that the parents see is to end the pregnancy, to take away the unhealthy baby. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no healthy baby on the table anymore, unfortunately. And so I think, you know, the very offer of a test suggests that something, something should be done. And I think because it's taking place in a system that is benefiting economically, it's hard to believe that there aren't more overt pressures. In our country, 25% of women say they feel pressured by their physicians to have an abortion. And so I think that that's that's certainly on the table. But I think women feel a larger societal pressure when this test is offered to, to make what would seem to be the responsible choice, right, and to end the life of their child.
1: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. My guest is Dr. Mary O'Callaghan, a developmental psychologist and a public policy fellow of the Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame, as well as a teaching professor of statistics in the Mendoza Business School. Mary, you just spoke there about the responsible thing to do at the end. And I was thinking about this, the way in which what counts as and what is considered to be responsible shifts according to... The kind of information that is given to a person or the sort of choices, as you're talking about, that are presented. I wanted to read this one paragraph from this Atlantic article and just get your response to it, because I love the way in which you brought our attention to the sort of political forces that are perhaps at play here in terms of making economic decisions beforehand about whether or not it is desirable to have certain types of persons born because of the financial burden that is seen there. But I want to read this paragraph that seems to go more to the personal individual level about what's happening to people when they're put into these binds of choice. So here's this paragraph. It says, the introduction of choice reshapes the terrain on which we all stand. To opt out of testing is to become someone who chose to opt out. To test and end a a pregnancy because of Down syndrome is to become someone who chose not to have a child with a disability. To test and continue the pregnancy after a Down syndrome diagnosis is to become someone who chose to have a child with a disability. Each choice puts you behind one demarcating line or another. I'd just love to hear your, your thoughts on what <laughs> our author is saying there.
0: Right. Well, what's interesting, too. In the study, she mentioned some research, which I had never heard of before. She said in one small study of women in the United States who chose abortion after a diagnosis of a fetal anomaly two-thirds said they'd hoped or even prayed for a miscarriage instead. Mm. And she goes on to say to the author, what kind of choice is this if what you hope is not to have to choose at all? So it's clear to me, you know, a couple of things, That things. First of all, these choices are very burdensome to women. And, and most would probably not like to be in this position to make these choices. She mentions a researcher in her article, an anthropologist by the name of Raina Rapp, who interestingly had an abortion of a child with Down syndrome herself. But mm. Raina calls these parents who are making these choices, these decisions, moral pioneers, right? Mm. As though they're somehow bravely going, you know, in uncharted territory, making these new decisions. But what I think is sort of happening, and, you know, when women are making these choices, is that they're not making these sort of choices in, in the sense that Raina Rapp would say is moral pioneers, really thinking of. Carefully about which lives are worth living and which are not. My thought about the sort of context in which they're making these choices is that they're making them largely out of fear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that if you think about the way that the prenatal testing is currently set up, generally parents find that they may have a child with a disability around 16 weeks. The 20 week mark is usually when we think of, uh, you know, sort of late term abortions happening. And so typically there's quite a bit of pressure for women to make a decision quickly. So, uh, women are making, you know, decisions under quite a bit of duress, right, very quickly. And and so, you know, to be honest, I, I think that it's sort of dangerous to talk about these women as though they're sort of sitting back, you know, in an armchair making very careful choices. I think that they are backed into a very difficult corner. And, you know, making very, you know, very sort of impulsive choices to avoid, you know, <laughs> suffering or 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 pain that they perceive um, may, may come as a result of this child.
1: Going along with that thought, Mary, I think there was something else in the article that said, I, I don't know if it was the same study you were just citing or if they were citing another study, but that most of the women who were making the choice for abortion after a prenatal diagnosis of down syndrome tended to base their decisions on worst case scenarios. So in other words, here's everything now that you know of this diagnosis that could possibly quote unquote, go wrong with your child early on later in life, all of the problems that your child could have. Right. And so the worst case scenarios were on their mind and they made their choice based on that. What does this say or suggest about how we think about unborn children whether or not they are diagnosed with one syndrome or another if we consider them according to worst case scenario.
0: Right. And, you know, I think the article makes the point that if you really knew all the things that were going to befall your children, right, when they were in utero, nobody would have nobody would have babies at all. You know, when my son Tommy was born with Down syndrome, you know, I would joke. You know, people would say, "Oh, you know, how are you handling this?" And I would joke. I'd say, "You know, at that point, my oldest was 14." I said, "I have a teenager." You know, <laughs> I, I know that children don't turn out the way that, that you think they're going to. You know, and and but it, but it's true. I think that all children come with substantial risks. But what's really interesting about this, right, is that in, in the article, I think she mentioned that the biggest problem for women is this sort of uncertainty, right? And another researcher says that that women are very risk averse because there's a chance, right, of something bad happening. They don't want to take that risk. But what's really interesting is that in the case of Down syndrome, we actually have a large amount of data that very strongly suggests that these children do not have, you know, inordinate amounts of suffering, that they do not cause much suffering for families. In fact, the opposite is true. There are more positive than negative effects on families with a child with Down syndrome. You've probably heard some of the statistics from Harvard researcher Brian Scott Coe, who um, has sort of compiled all the statistics that I think over 95% of families with Down syndrome are happy with their Mm -hmm. children. A large number, again, in the 90% range of individuals with Down syndrome are happy with their lives. And, you know, there's, there's lots of anecdotal evidence, but I think the research also backs this up, that there's actually not that much uncertainty that, you know, in most cases, these, these individuals go on to lead happy lives and, and their families are happy. There's sort of an interesting, I think, interesting sort of dichotomy set up in this Atlantic article, which I don't think the author intends. But mm-hmm. if you look at the families that she interviews or, or that sort of make their way into the article, there's a number, three or four families of children with Down syndrome that seem to be doing fairly. Really well. So, for example, there's a woman who runs the National Down Syndrome Association in Denmark, and she and her son are interviewed. And, and her son is doing very well. It seems like a typical, you know, 18 year old in many ways. Yeah. And, and they're happy. There's there's a few other younger families that she interviews, where, where again the family the, the children seem to be doing well, and the families are grateful that they didn't have prenatal testing, that they you know they didn't fall in the high risk category, and so their their baby somehow made it through the screening process alive. And and they seem very grateful for their children. And then she interviews another mother who asked to remain anonymous. Who, you know, tells a rather tragic story. She has a six-year-old son who is nonverbal, who is violent, who bites um, he, her and and his siblings. And you know, she kind of tearfully confesses that if she had known he had Down syndrome, she would have aborted him, which is a pretty horrific statement for a mother to make. And, and this is, you know, it's very sad. And I don't mean to disregard her suffering, but most families, I think, with individuals with Down syndrome, probably fall in between. And I think there are actually a lot of families of children with Down syndrome who have quite a few challenges, but who are still living very happy lives. And I know our family falls into that category. My son is 13. He has Down syndrome. He was diagnosed about a year and a half with autism as well. He has a you know, significant number of behavior problems. He um, had a very serious heart defect. He has visual problems. He um, has a feeding tube. He still struggles with eating regular food. And if you look at him on paper, you might think, oh, my goodness, you know, that that's one of the unlucky ones. You know that, that, That's the reason that we have prenatal screening. And I would say absolutely not. My son is a huge gift to our family. And, and, you know, I don't think our family is extraordinary. You know, we aren't saints. We aren't, you know, sort of bravely bearing under the load of my son. He's a beautiful little boy. He brings so much life and goodness to our family. And I think that most families of children with Down syndrome would tell you the same thing. Their children, have significant challenges. And, you know, they're not sort of, you know, the poster children that you might see, you know, in the media or, you know, the the actors and actresses that we see now with Down syndrome on television. They're not doing it as well as as some of those, you know, models that are held up. But we're doing very well in in terms of, you know, family happiness and in terms of our overall, you know, satisfaction and outlook Mm -hmm. on life. And so, unfortunately, I think that story wasn't told in The Atlantic. And so it looks as though you either, you know, you either get lucky and you have one of these kids who really, really is pretty, pretty normal, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you have a very bad outcome, yeah. kind of a worst case scenario.
1: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. My guest is Dr. Mario Callahan, developmental psychologist and public policy fellow of the Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame, as well as a teaching professor of statistics in the Mendoza Business School. really grateful for that observation. I think that's an excellent response to that article. Now that you mention it, I think that's absolutely true in that dichotomy that seeped in. I want to ask you also, Mary, about some of the teaching you've done about, in particular, disability selective abortion and at the intersection of issues of human dignity. And you've done some of that work even for our own institute, the McGrath Institute for Church Life and our Office of Life and Human Dignity and some teaching resources that are publicly available. But even as you were, you know, as you've been talking about some of these matters, I'm thinking about the dignity of the unborn child and the child who is born with Down syndrome. But I'm also thinking about the dignity of the others who make these choices, those of us who are parents about our society. What do you see here at the intersection of disability selective abortion? And the issue, the broader issues of human dignity and what it means for us to actually value our dignity as human beings.
0: Good question. So my husband is a philosopher, teaches St. Thomas Aquinas, and he gives a presentation which is called Failed Persons, Right. And the idea is that many people, especially in the philosophy community, would see people like my son, people with Down syndrome, people with other disabilities, as failed persons. Right? They're not quite as good. <laughs> They're not. You know, they don't feel fail, or they they don't live up to uh, the standards of what we think. You know, functioning humans should be. And my husband has, uh, turns this around. Right. And he uses Saint Thomas Aquinas that this idea that we are called that, that we we are, we are created in the image of God, but that also means that we are called, right? This is a call. This isn't sort of a sort of a de facto thing. We have to strive, <laughs> right, to be that image of God. <laughs> And so he turns around this idea of sort of a failed person that perhaps it is us, right, that are failed, that failed persons, that, that we do not, you know, live up to our capacity as fully human when we don't accept those with disabilities, those like my son. I think that really the, the onus is, is on us to uphold our dignity through accepting those with disabilities.
1: I love the way in which you're, you're talking about what your husband does and flipping that around. Who are the failed persons here? Like they're in the, sort of lust to, whatever it is, eradicate disability from our society. We actually are creating another kind of disability, a deeper form of disability, a sort of spiritual disability, you might say, where we've concocted an image that we think this is what a human being is, and we're trying to shape our society towards the image that we've created. Is this a a harbinger of a larger issue that we're moving into, of this kind of genetic selection, this children made by specialists in a lab, us creating images of what a human being ought to be. How do you see this as a really bigger issue for us going into the future?
0: That's a really good question, Lani. So one of the developments when when we began this segment, I, I was talking about some of the changes in prenatal testing that have occurred in the last 10 or 15 years. One of the changes that I didn't mention is that we are increasing our ability to test for disorders. So we, we're testing for more disorders. And so, you know, we can test not only for sort of whole chromosome disorders such as Down syndrome, but we are also able to test for uh, what are called sort of micro deletions or micro, micro duplications, right, of small sections of chromosomes. Actually, we can sequence now from maternal blood, we can sequence the entire, right, fetal DNA. And so, so we have an incredible ability at, at this point to look for a number of different characteristics of the unborn child in, in its mother's womb. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that this this is going to lead to widespread widespread testing is, is kind of debatable. If you'd asked me about five years ago, I would say that I think we are definitely going to more widespread testing or, or testing for even more disorders, perhaps even you know, doing whole genome sequencing in utero. But So far, I don't see that this is happening in a clinical setting. Hmm. I think that actually um, it's very difficult to use this information clinically. There was a really interesting study done a few years ago with something called chromosomal microarray analysis. So again, mothers were able to have access to information about Small deletions and small duplications of their children's chromosomes in utero, and what they found was that most mothers considered this very toxic knowledge. It was very uncertain. They didn't know how to respond to it. Many mothers aborted, even though there was no clear indication then that this would actually mean that something was wrong with their child. We all walk around with you know micro duplications and micro deletions in our chromosomes, and so I think this was. I think that the research shows that many, many parents really don't want this kind of information. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to process. I do think, though, that we may be going towards moving towards testing of other disorders that, uh, so things like autism, for example. Mm-hmm. I know that in this, in this article, one of the researchers mentioned that parents have started to ask for a test uh, for autism and the science isn't quite there yet. We have the ability to detect some markers for autism, some genetic markers. Um, we're not doing that yet prenatally, but I think that I think that this might be on the horizon. And uh, what I think, and this, this is my, maybe this is just my, my hope, my hope is that if we do get to this point, it may be the tipping point for hmm. many obstetricians and gynecologists because autism is very common. You know, one out of 49 children, I think, have autism. And I think if we reach the point where we test for autism, I think this, this might overwhelm obstetricians and, and gynecologists. I think that they may back off from this because the amount of sort of devastation, I think that we would see would be mm-hmm. tremendous. And, you know, it would be really a wholesale destruction of many children in utero if, if, if parents respond to this testing the way they have to testing a children with Down syndrome.
1: My guest today has been Mary O'Callaghan of the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture and the Mendoza School of Business. She's talking about some of her work on disability selective abortions and issues of human dignity. You can find some of her teaching resources through our McGrath Institute for Church Life's Office of Life and Human Dignity. Go to McGrath.nd.edu slash life. That's McGrath.nd.edu slash life. Mary, thank you so much for spending this time in conversation with me today. Thank you, Lenny. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today.
0: This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
1: Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?